feel like we need some excitement in here. Maybe we need to get some kids up here, do a little dance. Callaway, you up for it? Okay. I tried. What if Mr. Jackson tells you to dance? Oh, Colson's ready for it. You guys can actually go with Katie and head to Children's Church. Maybe you'll get a dance next time. Well, tonight, if you guys want to turn to 1 Peter 5, we have been going through this series of 1 Peter, and we get to land on chapter 5, which is the last chapter, and kind of get to wrap up tonight. So tonight, as you turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, I just want to start with reading uh, verses 1 through 11, and then after that, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into um, what Peter is trying to wrap this book up, how he tries to to close chapter 5, how he tries to to wrap this um, series up. It says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you guys would bow and pray with me, and then we're going to get into seeing what 1 Peter has for us. Heavenly Father, we just thank you tonight. And we humbly come before you, and we ask that you just help us to, that we would hear your words. We would know that what you want us to learn from these things, what truths you want us to pick up, and how we ought to apply those to our life. And we just thank you for all the grace that you've bestowed on us. May you get all the glory. Amen. So 1 Peter 5 starts and really lands on this talk about being humble. Uh, You kind of saw how many times he said humble, either to humble yourself or have humility toward one another. There's also a reference to the Old Testament where he's saying that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I want to talk a little bit tonight just about what it looks like to have pride, what it looks like to have humility, and how we ought to live. Uh, So first off, when it comes down to this pride and humility, uh, we tend to think that proud people probably won't listen to the sermon anyway. So, um, and if you really, really listen to the sermon, you feel like you're automatically humble. I want to kind of start off and just set the 
the stage that Peter lays out. And we all need to kind of have that sense of humility in understanding that we all are proud, right? If I had to raise the hands, who, who's been prideful in their life? You guys can raise your hands if you actually... Okay, all of us, right? Pride is one of those things that creeps in and everybody has. And since everybody has it, sometimes the way that we make ourselves feel a little better is that we just don't want to talk about it or at least talk the way that Jesus talks about it. So Peter really starts in this story, he starts to talk about the things that are going on to this church. He's writing to the people that are in Asia Minor and the people that are wanderers from a land. They're refugees. And essentially he tells them and wants to encourage them by saying, uh, understand who God is. And in your understanding who God is, I know that you as a church are suffering right now. He says, I know that you're going through various trials, distressed by various trials. And that's in chapter 1, verse 6. And Peter tells us to rejoice in those sufferings. So how do we rejoice in those sufferings? Well, as Peter wraps it up, he continues to, to describe that the only way to get to that point where you can rejoice in your sufferings is he refers to Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. That we ought to look at Jesus Christ and think of him uh, as somebody significant. So in this day, a lot of the Jewish people would be thinking of Jesus Christ as uh, just somebody who was uh, a good man, a prophet. Uh, and even today, if you go over to Israel and you interview them or you ask them questions, Jesus Christ uh, really doesn't mean a whole lot to them. Not any more than uh, any other man like Moses, they would say. He is just somebody who uh, was a good man, potentially a prophet, but realistically, there's, there's nothing after that. Peter's laying out that Jesus Christ is significant. We just celebrated Christmas, so this is already uh, a really good opportunity to land in chapter 5 when, when he's laying out that Jesus Christ is significant. He was born of a virgin, came to this earth, and he had something miraculous about him, something that people even today don't see Jesus as that man. So um, Jesus Christ is the one that we ought to see as our true cornerstone. He's the one that we ought to look at for all example, uh, what it looks like to actually live a life that um, is righteous. With that being said, um, Peter references in chapter 5 this uh, difference between pride and humility. And he says that there's a few main things that you really start to see. That pride is opposed to humility. See that in verse 5. And it also is opposed to God. Sometimes we feel like we can we can be proud at times, right? Have you ever thought through in your life the th- times where it's okay to be proud and the times where it's not? I hope that we kind of get a little better sense of what that looks like by the end, end of chapter 5. So I want to start off and just talk about uh, the definition of pride. So I want to talk about what pride is. Then I want to go back and talk about, uh, let's look at pride in the Bible. Uh, then after that, we're going to continue and see what pride looks like in God's people. Then I want to look at pride in the church today. And then we'll just kind of land on humility. So if we follow that, 
Pride, by definition, uh, is the lack of fear or reverence toward God. It seems to be a pretty broad definition, but let's, let's try to work through this as we, as we walk through uh, Peter. One pastor or a theologian had actually even said that uh, pride is a sense of entitlement, which also points back to that lack or of fear or reverence toward God. <clears throat> but that pride is something that we see uh, early on from the Old Testament. So I want to take you to uh, a place... Um, in the Old Testament, but before I do, I want to tell you just a quick little story about what happened uh, growing up in the church. So I grew up in the church, and I remember as a kid sitting down and doing a lot of different Bible drills, memory, uh, verse memorization, and in those things, they were good. Um, But then you take a good thing and you give it to kids, and what do kids usually do to good things? You guys have furniture, right? I'm sure it's still good. No, no, right? As kids, uh, we took something that was good and we turned it into something that shouldn't have been. And when it even came down to Bible trivia, Bible drills, verse memorization, uh, we would do those things and you could automatically start to see this competing nature that kids had to be able to try to make sure that they could do it first or they could learn the most memory verses. And then essentially, they were trying to um, compete with other kids in the room, and it became uh, just very prideful. Uh, for instance, so I had an older brother, and my older brother was really good at Bible drills, memory verse, uh, verse memorization, trivia. Uh, he was actually really, really good, phenomenal at it, and I was not. So uh, it, it really came about to where like, I would sit there with this pity for myself. Uh, which was almost the opposite of pride, right? And, and as a kid, I almost thought that that was being humble, that I could sit there and, you know, didn't have to know everything. My older brother, however, on, on sword drills, he was always the first one to get there. Um, memory verses, he'd always get the treat, candy, whatever that you got from those things. Uh, and yet, we start to see this competitive nature between each other. Uh, and the thing that parents and adults want those things to to do in kids lives is that they want kids to do bible drills and learn memory verses why so that you would know who christ is so that you could start to have a relationship with him but as a kid we didn't do them to have a better relationship with christ we did them just so we could compete with the person and see how good we were We had no fear for God or reverence for God. We'll get into that a little bit more. So the best way to see pride or to look at pride is to go back and look at it in the Bible. So I want to go back into the Bible. uh, And in Daniel 4, verses 30 and 32, we talk about King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar is the, the king of Babylon. He's also the king that Babylon took over Judah. So the people, God's own people, he had taken them, wiped out their land, um, basically desolated their city, and then taken them back to uh, his land, and then forced them into slavery. And as you see King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar is not someone who uh, tried to strive for God, wasn't trying to believe in God, anything of that nature. 
Uh, he was just living a life as a king. Uh, and you see this in somebody that we would call a non-Christian or some kind of Gentile, right? It says, the king began speaking and was saying, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the, world was, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the animals of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. King Nebuchadnezzar, who had triumphed over many nations, had great wealth, had a great huge city, had said to himself, look how great I am. Do you not see what I've built? And King Nebuchadnezzar is one who gets humbled. And humbled in a way that we kind of get giddy about. Or at least maybe as you read that, maybe you get a little giddy. We're like, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he's being a little, he's, he's bragging a lot. He's really, really prideful. And the next thing you know, he's out in the field eating grass like cattle. I don't know about you, but, but that would be uh, unheard of and even hard to fathom. Because we, we haven't ever thought of President Trump or anything like that out in the, out in the fields eating grass or any other president, or any other governor, or any other kind of person in power, right? Um, that would be completely humbling. And the amount of people that would have seen this would have seen him, and it would have been a disgrace, completely humiliating. And sometimes it brings us joy when we see pride brought down by the mighty hand of God. Until he looks at us. So let's switch a little bit. And see what pride looks like in God's people. So the first thing I want to mention is that pride can happen to anybody. Be cautious with thinking that you're not prideful because that's the moment that it hits you. So the people of Israel, if you go back to Deuteronomy 8, 11, and 14, in Deuteronomy, um, there's a warning to God's people. And God gives this warning to his people and says, hey, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied and you build good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks increase and your silver and your gold increase and everything that you have increases, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." You see, it was even in those Bible drills as a young little boy, Bible drills and memorizing verses were meant for us to not forget the Lord your God. And yet, we used it completely different than that. So pride in itself is not an action. Pride is a posture. It's, it's a way that we live toward one another toward God. It's a posture. So there's different postures you can have. You can have a laying down posture. You can have a standing posture, sitting down, whatever that looks like. Uh, and there are different postures that you have probably seen if you're uh, at a certain age 
and, and I won't necessarily give you that, that age, but uh, I remember when I was real young that there were probably times where posture was important. For instance, if, if a lady walked into a room, what would you do, man? Stand up, right? If, um, if all of a sudden uh, a lady would have to go to the bathroom and you were sitting at a dinner table or something like that, what would you do? You'd stand up. There was something about posture that gave a certain level of respect or attitude toward somebody else. So when we're looking at posture, you can have, this is, this is something that we've kind of referenced before, you can have somebody that does, uh, two different people that do the exact same thing, and one can do it out of a posture of pride, one can do it out of a posture of humility. So it's not the action that necessarily is prideful, but it's the posture you have in that. So God's own people were warned not to be puffed up, to be proud of the things that they had. For instance, uh, building big houses, uh, being comfortable. Uh, kind of sounds a little bit like today, right? We still sometimes can get fall into that same point. But when it comes down to uh, what happened to Israel next, I want to turn to Jeremiah 13. And Jeremiah is declaring what God is, is telling Israel. Here's the warning. Don't be proud. Guess what happened? He says, this is what the Lord says. To the same extent, I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in stubbornness of their hearts and have followed other gods to serve them and bow down to them. Let them be just like this undergarment, which is completely useless. He's referencing that the people of Israel are going to be taken off and they're going to be captured. They're going to be uh, Babylon, who again, we just talked about King Nebuchadnezzar. God's going to allow King Nebuchadnezzar to come and take over. They're going to be exiled to a foreign land. And it's because of this proud posture. Pride is something that, uh, as you look throughout the Bible, you can see throughout the whole book. It starts in the Garden of Eden. There was pride that happened when all of a sudden Eve comes before the serpent. And the serpent says, hey, uh, what, are, what are the things that you can do and what, what can't you do? Eve says, ah, oh, you know, I can do anything, but I can't eat from this tree. And the serpent slowly whispers to her and says, are you sure? Is, is that really what, what God said? And he convinced her to think that um, the posture she had, the pride in her life, ended up getting to the point where she thought that uh, she could do whatever she wanted. And she ate of the fruit, and it was detrimental ever since then. The problem with pride, too, is that it continues. Pride isn't something that you feel like you can get rid of or that you have accomplished or you've defeated at one point. Uh, it keeps coming back. Uh, Haggai comes on after this, and even after uh, Babylon has been overruled, you see the, the Persian nation come up. And even through the Persian nation, the people of Israel are still warned and said, Consider your ways. You have sown much, only to harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but there's not enough for anyone to get warm. And the one who earns, earns wages to put into a money bag full of holes. He's, he warns them that no matter how much stuff you have, it's just never enough. 
Consider your ways. Is, are you ever satisfied? Well, pride will give you that unsatisfaction in your life. So let's look a little bit about what pride looks like today. We still have pride. Pride is still around. You see that in striving for the American dream. I was guilty of the same thing. When Heather and I first got married, we moved down to Nashville. Uh, a little bit after uh, we were married in Savannah, she was uh, like eight months pregnant with Savannah. Uh, we moved down to Nashville, and I took a job uh, building houses. So I was going to be a field superintendent for uh, this construction to, to build houses. Uh, the, the pay wasn't great, but ultimately you could eventually build some houses for fairly cheap, and then you could sell them and then make some money, and then you could really start to grow some wealth. And my whole interest in all of that was that I could provide for my family. That was the lie I led, led to believe. The lie that I, that I kept believing was that, ah, oh, I'm just doing this to provide my, for my family. And yet the whole time I had a posture of pride toward God, toward anybody else. Pride in my life was meant just to get me past everybody else. Let me, let me help better express this uh, by a guy named C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis writes a book named Mere Christianity. And I just want to read you something that uh, stands out when it comes to pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the man next to you. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud of. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Pride really stands out when we start to compare ourselves to one another. And you see that in the church. You see that with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, when compared to other nations, looked to be God's favored people. And yet, even as God's favored people seem to walk down this road of as much, if not more, pride than the other nations. It still happens to us today, and it can go both ways. So pride can have this, this nature of having more of something, right? So we can be richer, cleverer, better looking. Uh, but I would also say that pride can land in a way that says that we have suffered more. And as Peter is writing to a people that have, are suffering great trials, he's trying to warn them against this. Sometimes we can think, I've had more suffering than this other man, so I'm owed something. Pride gives us that feeling that we're owed something. Either we're, either we're owed something from other people or we're owed something from God. How many times have you said, hey God, I'm obedient. I've been doing what you want me to do. Why am I still suffering? Why am I going through these things? Why, don't you owe me a good life? Don't you owe me something? That's where pride really stands out. Because pride is self-seeking, self-gratifying. Pride tries to take control in your life. It's pride in your life that really tries to grasp on the control of all that's going to happen. Think of all the things that you try to control in your life. Um, 
We, we try to control um, how we look, how we dress, how we feel. And sometimes we try to control how we feel by doing certain actions, right? It is foolish to think that we're really in control of anything. It's arrogant and prideful to think that God owes us something, whether it means that God owes us um, a happy life, that God owes us some type of um, lack of suffering when it comes to being obedient. There's, there's a sense of feeling like God should take all of the, the bad things in our life away. Take the anxiety away. Take all those things away. Haven't I done enough for you, God? And it's pride and arrogance that comes about in that competitive nature with God, saying that God, hey, I, I wouldn't have done it that way. I have a better way. There was a, a man that made a comment named uh, uh, Mr. McGee, and he was on the radio, and uh, one of the comments that he made was that um, he said that uh, God has a universe, and God also does things his way. You might have a better way, but you don't have a universe. And so often we think that God ought to push life, draw life in whatever we're going through in the certain way that we ought to think it goes. How many of you would say that you feel like where you're at today is exactly where you would have put yourself? That's the kind of competition we have with God. We say, God, like this isn't where I saw myself. Why do you have me here? And yet, pride is in that way, always trying to boost our ego and boost ourselves to thinking that God owes us something, to thinking that other people owe us something. And when we, when we don't get that thing, we get a little mad. We get frustrated. Whether it's um, my newspaper better show up at a certain time by 6.30 or else. Or if I order a pizza, that pizza better be there within a half hour. Or whether um, anything else in your life that you try to control, it's, it's pride that always makes you feel like you ought to have it the way you see life. Uh, we see this in Job, right? Job walks through life and, and he is, gets everything taken away from him. Job, in one day, sees his family, his kids, his livestock, his servants, everything in his life completely taken away. And Job shows us a glimmer of humility when he says, all of these things came from you, and from dust I came, from dust I will return. And it's his wife that tells him to curse God. You see a posture of humility and a posture of pride. And so often, we bounce back and forth between them. We bounce back forth and we struggle with our own pride. But pride, ultimately, as Peter describes too, gives us a lot of anxiety. Because when we don't know what's going to happen next, we can be pretty anxious. When we don't know um, what's coming, what God has for us, uh, when we put our hands in subjection to somebody else, we can get pretty afraid, pretty scared. Because we don't want to submit to that kind of power. We have a hard time submitting to that power. 
And yet, Peter throughout the book continues to say, you ought to submit. Submit to every human institution. Servants, submit to your masters. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, likewise, submit to every authority that you have in your life. And yet, it's that pride that will keep us from submitting. So what does it look like to have humility? What ought we have to, what should we do to be humble? As Peter describes, to humble yourself, what does that look like? Well, humility is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. So it's not to try to um, think lowly of yourself, but it is to know that you're not the center of the world. Sometimes we think that humility looks like we just ought to almost degrade ourselves, almost punish ourselves in that way. God doesn't want you to feel lowly, but God also wants you to come to him and know that you're not the center of the world, but he is. Look at the example of Peter himself. Peter is a disciple of Jesus. He walked with Jesus as a disciple, got to see the miracles that Jesus did, got to feel the things that Jesus did, got to see, experience, smell, all the different senses you have. He got to see those things in Christ. And yet, Peter's personality gets him in trouble a lot. Peter's pretty bold, isn't he? Look at Matthew 16. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. It was Peter that took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God, forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. Even in Peter, Peter shows us a picture of where Peter was trying to tell Jesus, uh, you are the greatest, you're the son of God. Nobody can take you down. And yet Jesus says, but that's not my way. That's not what I'm here to do. What I came to do is come and die on a cross. See, Peter's boldness, his personality doesn't change as he continues. Peter uh, continues through the Bible, even through the New Testament, continues to be bold. He continues to be this man that stands up and tells people the way it is. His personality doesn't change, but his posture does. He comes to, if you look in Acts 10, Peter comes to to, uh, be called by this Roman centurion, the centurion that comes to to Peter and says, uh, an angel came to me and uh, you are meant to come and speak to us and tell us who Jesus is. And as Peter gets there, uh, this centurion, this Roman soldier, uh, who again, the, the, the difference between a Roman soldier and a Jewish man was to the point where like, you would never see a Roman bow down to a Jewish man. And yet, the centurion bows down at Peter's feet. And Peter says, stand up. I too am just a man. Peter, as the apostle, doesn't lord it over him, but he has a posture of humility toward God and toward the centurion. You see, Jesus transforms us. He, uh, as Peter describes, you are born again. But Jesus transforms us in this certain way where he shows humility in, in a few different ways. 
he shows us that humility lives under God's right hand. That as you see humility, humility always looks at God, looks at Jesus, whatever he's doing, and says, Jesus, whatever you have that's happening, whether it's on earth today that's going on now or what was going on in the past, everything that's happened is in subjection, in submission to God. All the things that happen, God's never out of control. And Peter reminds us that we ought to be humble by living under his right hand. Humility does not feel a right to better treatment than Jesus got. Peter gives us the posture a couple different ways. So Peter, in his own posture, is a witness of the humiliation of Christ. And Peter emulates that as he describes and reminds the church to be humble. As he describes young men to submit to elders, just the way he had talked about all the different submission to the authorities that were in your life, that humility will allow you to submit to the authorities in your life. Humility will also be the thing that the church should be known for. When you think of the church across America today, do you think of a bunch of humble people? Or do you think of a bunch of prideful people? You see, that's the danger. As a church, we're called to be humble toward one another, toward the authorities in our life, and yet it's in our pride that we'll think that we have the better answer. That God doesn't know what he's doing in this. So how do you humbly submit to the God-ordained authorities that Peter describes throughout the text? I want to give you one glimpse of what true humility looks like in the Bible between a couple guys. uh, And then I want to close on what Peter really describes as the ultimate humility and, and who we ought to look at. So Luke 18 describes this picture of two men. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the perfect picture of humility. It's not in their actions. Pharisees were pretty good at following the law. They always did the law up to the point where it was right. And yet, even in this story, humility is a posture of someone who is humble, that sees Christ's mercy. To think that God owes us anything is arrogance. And yet, Peter describes this when he describes Jesus himself. It's at the end of chapter 2 that he gives us Christ as our example, that Jesus Christ is the one who humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ suffered for you, and he trusted himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were, you were healed. See, Peter really describes and finishes off and closes with the fact that Christ is our ultimate example. He's the one that humbled himself far beyond you and I will ever have to humble ourselves. And he humbled himself for you and I. And that ought to encourage us to uh, give us a new thinking when it comes to how we ought to live, how we ought to be in subjection to the authorities around in our life, and how we ought to be uh, living toward one another. In the church, we should be called the most humble people. And if you're called the most humble people, hopefully it's by somebody else outside, not by yourself. Because if you're calling yourself humble, then you're probably not. But it's that picture between pride and humility and that posture. It was that posture of doing Bible drills and learning memory verses. And it was a posture of pride that made me try to compare myself to others and beat my chest and think, wow, look at me. And yet, Peter says, humble yourself. You ought to see yourself in light of Christ. And when you see yourself in light of Christ, none of us can stand. All of us fall short. All of us ought to sit with humility. Would you guys close with me tonight in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight and we ask that you would remove any pride in our life. That we're a people that pride wells up inside of us time and time again. And we just pray tonight that you would help us understand when we're being prideful. Help us to know that the ultimate goal that Peter describes to us is that our focus should be so much on your your Son, Jesus Christ, that we don't even look at ourselves. That the way to be humble is to elevate you and to see you the way you are meant to be seen and the way that the Father in heaven, heaven has exalted you. And we tonight just ask and humbly come before you. We just ask to transform our heart to a state of humility that as we sing and close tonight that we would elevate you and know that you don't owe us anything, but yet it's through your grace and your mercy that you have saved us. So we just thank you and we praise your name. Amen.